This is the Fed Up Podcast, discussing all things the hosts are fed up with in sports. Now, here are the hosts, Larry Cooper and Kyle Nichol. And welcome into the initial Fed Up Podcast here. Larry Cooper along with Kyle Nichol as we get set to start into the world of sports. And we find out what we're fed up with today. And I think the most important topic right now, which is the most timely topic, we also started the NFL season about three weeks ago, but now we're officially into the big part of the baseball season, which is the postseason. Two wild card games are down and seen some interesting results. But the teams we expected to move along, which was Arizona and New York, move along into the next round of the playoffs. No real surprise there. Both teams hosting the wild card playoffs. And I think that's the one advantage you get in what is initially a game seven and a one game playoff to get in there. And I think both teams did what they needed to do to get along to the next uh, round of the playoffs. Now, before I get started, I'll say in honor of our the title of our podcast, I was a little fed up with what was going on with my laptop. Unfortunately, we got everything settled out. And, and yeah, you expected what happened in those two games. The Yankees falling behind 3 nothing in the game last night with a couple of home runs by the Minnesota Twins. But Irvin Santana has been terrible in his career at Yankee Stadium. And you saw that come to fruition last night. Making couple of bad pitches to one to D.D. Gregor to tie that ball game. Then, you know, when Joe Girardi goes to his bullpen, that's one of the big strengths of the Yankees. We saw that last night. But those guys had to pitch, they had to cover eight and two-thirds innings because Luis Severino just did not have it last night. But the Yankees finding a way to win. Aaron Judge with the home run in the ball game. Brett Gardner got on three times. So not a big surprise there if the Yankees move on. Then tonight, another wild game where, again, the two starters don't go beyond the fourth inning. So both teams had to go to their bullpens and, we saw Arizona with their great offense, of course, with Paul Goldschmidt and J.D. Martinez leading the way to a wild-card victory to them. So, so you have the Yankees moving on to face Cleveland, and and the Diamondbacks will face the Dodgers coming up in the division round. And I think that's the one thing we can see through these playoffs so far is the four team, or the eight teams that are playing for the World Series, the four in each Conf, or each uh, league are the four best teams that are that are playing. I think that the Cleveland-New York matchup is going to be great. I think Houston really has an advantage over Boston because of the offensive capability. I think the pitching staffs are very equal. But I think Houston's pitching staff, especially in the bullpen, may be deeper before you get to Kimbrell as the closer. He may be a little bit better. He's been even more lights out than Giles has been this year. But I think that Houston has a very good chance. And we talked about it. If Houston can win this first game and get that one under the belt, I think it really puts the Boston Red Sox behind the eight ball. They have to come up with a victory, can't lose game two at that point, and then have to find a way to win both in Boston and or come back to Houston and face the possibility of Verlander pitching a game five. Right. Of course, on the Astro side of the ledger there, everybody talked about when you had to face Boston, you had to face Chris Sale twice. Now, Sale for five months has been Cy Young worthy, obviously an outstanding pitcher, but you look at some of his September numbers, it's pretty mortal. 29 innings pitched, a 372 ERA, nine home runs allowed, and eight walks to go along with 44 strikeouts, and bat- opponents batting 272 against him during the month of September. So he's been more mortal during the month. Of course, a lot of people, we talk about the fact that the Astros are under 500 against left-handed starters, so that could be Boston hoping that that plays into the heads of the, of the Astros lineup. But And Chris Sale during his career has been dominant against the Astros, but I have to say that's through 2012 to 2016. He has not faced this lineup which is one of the best lineups in baseball. And we go back to 1998, the last time that Houston had this prolific of an offensive lineup, and I think it would be fun to match up this 2017 team player for player against the eight batters that you had back when you were in the National League of the 98 team when they had just such a great run. You get the 
the tremendous effort from Randy Johnson when he came over in the trade midseason right at the deadline uh, with the Seattle Mariners coming over to Houston, went 10-1 and in his final games with the uh, Astros during the regular season and then matched up with Kevin Brown. And really, I think that we go back to that, and that's one of the things that we'll talk about being fed up about was the way Houston really got screwed on that schedule back in 1998 where the powers that be in baseball elongated that series out so much that Kevin Brown pitched two of the first three games in the playoffs. I think there was one rain delay or one rain out that permitted that to happen. And then Sterling Kitsch happens to the Houston Astros in game four and ends that series. I'm glad you brought up the other name. Obviously, people talking that series about Kevin Brown and how dominant he was. And to be able, like you said, the ability to pitch twice in that series. But a lot of Astros fans look back at not being able to not hit Sterling Hitchcock as what caused him to lose that series. But then Randy Johnson was great in that series. He just got outpitched by Kevin Brown. But in this series, I just don't see it from the Red Sox standpoint, particularly if they struggle with Sale on the mound tomorrow. Then they have Pomerantz. Yes, another left-hander going. My thought all along is if Boston did not win game one of the series tomorrow, then the Astros were going to win this series either in three or four games. I just That's just the way I look at it with their offense and some of the injury issues that Boston's been dealing with. Well, I, and another thing we talk about being fed up with is is the way the scheduling has happened. This goes back to Houston whenever they played for the four or five consecutive division championships they had in the late 90s before moving into Minute Maid, which was in Ron Park at that time. And, and the lack of respect that we've always seen from Houston, from the national media, the national networks, they just don't, even as the fourth biggest market, maybe the fifth or sixth biggest TV market, don't carry the cachet that you would obviously would have with a Boston, a New York, uh, a Chicago, an L. LA. And I think that's the one thing that I have a problem with. Houston getting relegated to two afternoon games again. Obviously, they'll play an afternoon game probably on Sunday because it will be opposite the Texans game that they will not try to go up against on Sunday night. So you could have three games in this divisional series that could be out of the way and be done in basically about a 72 or 76 hour window. Right. Well, at the end of the day, both series will have an off day on the same day. So I don't know if it's that big of a deal. I mean, it might be inconvenient. A lot of people went and get off to work to be able to, or be able to, to watch the game at work, you know, just being at three o'clock and then even earlier on, on Friday. But when you look at the matchup tomorrow, obviously Justin Verlander has been absolutely dominant since he's come over here, five and oh, with a 1.06 ERA, so I think 45 strikeouts and five walks. I mean, he has been, he hasn't been as advertised. He's been better than advertised since he put on an Astro uniform. And I think that that's one thing because obviously the comparisons were to Randy Johnson back in 1998 because he came in here, was so dominant. He really filled the dome at that time. There was 50,000 people that would show up. He was an event every single time. I don't think that Verlander carried quite that cachet. Now, this is a man that could be, I think he's no worse than the Hall of Very Good if he is not a Hall of Famer before this is all said and done. And this was a perfect acquisition because you look at the numbers that Houston can absorb right now. His contract that carries a $20 million price tag for the next couple of years, that can very easily be absorbed because you're going to have some people that will be dropped off this team at the end of the year, some payroll modification that will facilitate before you have to get into the arbitration or the numbers you're going to have to get into with the Springer, with an Altuve in the next couple of years. Even a Marwin Gonzalez, if he can repeat his season this year, Next year, what do you do with him in the offseason in 2018? There's a lot of things in some intangibles, the upward-looking mobility that Houston has. But I think right now, 
This team is set, and we've talked about this. This could be a five to seven year run very easily, depending upon health for these players and how they what they do with the pitching staff. I think this is something that will be sustained for a very long time because of the young core nucleus, and you don't even have a Bregman that's going to be an all star level player over the next five years. He hasn't even started touching the surface of how good he's going to be. And when you talk about a team winning 101 games during the regular season, a lot of people say, well, you had six or seven guys maybe had a career year. By my way of thinking, there's only three guys in this lineup that had a career year. I'm talking about Marwin Gonzalez, obviously. I mean, he's far better than he's been in his – I don't say far better, but a guy that's averaged about a – about a 250 hitter has been over 300 this year. Josh Reddick, which has so far been a great addition, he's had a career year, and George Springer. But talk about a guy like Bregman, I think it's going to get better. Carlos Correa had, was out for six weeks with the injury. He's got, even Altuve is, is an MVP candidate. I mean, he's just basically repeated what he's done the last couple of years. I would, would not say he's even had a, a career year. So you're talking about a team that are guys that can get even better with some of these young guys. And I think when when we look at this team, and I think that's the functionality, when we look at this team, as the sky's the limit, you're probably two years ago ahead of pace by about three or four years when they did make the playoffs as a wild card team. This is the team we expected this year. Sports Illustrated a couple of years ago had them as the 2017 world champions, and I don't think that there's any doubt in our minds, that this team can win a World Series this year. They have every component you need. You have the pitching in the bullpen. You have the starting pitching, two, three, four deep pitchers that can go in night in and night out and be able to win you games. And the lineup, one through nine, is one of the deepest lineups we've seen in baseball. And it, it professes itself because it's one of the most prolific offenses, not named the 19, 20, or 30 Yankees, that has been performing over one of the five teams in that last basically 75, 80 years of baseball. And going back over the lineup, I'm going to go number out there that you, somebody, if you're not a sabermetric geek like I am, you know, it's called WRC Plus, that I'll give a little context to this. 100 is league average. The Astros have nine hitters over 100 in that, in that category, which is outstanding. And Carlos Beltran, great veteran who may be a future Hall of Famer, is not one of, the, is not one of those guys. You have a guy like Yuli Gurriel, who two years ago would have been hitting cleanup in the lineup, and he's hitting eighth. That tells you how deep this lineup is. And I think that the interesting thing and the, probably the two most important players in this playoff are going to be Marwin Gonzalez, if he can continue to maintain what he's done all season long and be able to do this at a playoff level. And then also, what is Carlos Beltran going to bring you besides experience? Because obviously he's played on the biggest stage with the Yankees and then last year with Texas in the playoffs. Can he bring you something, maybe one or two at-bats during the course of the playoffs, where he faces a right-hander from the left-hand side and maybe pops one out for you and gives you an extra run that you may need to give you a little bit of, of uh, a cushion or maybe hits a game-tying or a game-go-ahead home run? I think that's where he brings it. I don't think he can be counted on on a night-in, night-out basis that you're going to have to count on Altuve or Correa or Springer or Bregman. I think that the important thing for the offense is to get a home field advantage because this is the first time in a very long time they've had the home field advantage for any playoff series, and they'll be able to do that against Boston and get them down here in Houston for the first two ball games. And I think if they could sweep the first two ball games, they are primed for a sweep of the whole series. Well, again, we went back to talking about that with Boston needing to win a game one with Sale on the mound. And when you look at some of the lineup combinations, I think Beltron has to sit these first two games against Sale, then against Drew Pomerantz on Friday in game two. So you look at the what I think A.J. Hinch is going to do. He'll put Marwin Gonzalez in left field, help Uli at first base, and then Gaddis at DH. But we talked about a possible combination where maybe you put Derek Fisher, the young guy in left field, though I don't know if they're going to want to do that, put that young left-handed batter up against two tough left-handers in Sale and Pomerantz. 
put Marvin Gonzalez at first base where you upgrade the defense over what Gurriel gives you and then put Yuli at DH. Well, the other option also is to put Maven in left field and have him start maybe as your number nine hitter, basically a second leadoff hitter, and that could be another option because this is the team that has about three or four different options in just each each position in the outfield that you can be able to go with. Obviously, you, you've had a loss of, of – a player here and there, but at the end of the day, the question is going to be, is Reddick's back ready to go? If he's not able to go, at least you do have a Fisher. At least you do have a Maben. You have options there because Marisnik going down with the injury earlier, and, and he won't be available for the playoffs at all. Well, indications that Josh Reddick should be ready to go for this series, but we'll see if he's in the lineup tomorrow. And you mentioned a couple of guys, Maben, a guy in Cameron, Maben, another veteran, of course, came over on the same day that Justin Verlander came over here and those are yeah better not I mean, and i think they're gonna use fisher and maybe two guys as kind of pinch runners off the bench that's would be the advantage of having marwin gonzalez playing in left field and putting yuli at first base and the other reason you could put gas at dh is because you have this now a third catcher juan centeno is going to be on the roster so you have that other catcher if something were to happen to brian mccann and then you look at the other series, Cleveland taking on New York in the best of five. It'll start out in Cleveland on Thursday and Friday. And I think that when you look at the Cleveland Indians, this is a team that very similarly looks like the Kansas City Royals from three years ago that lost in the World Series, came back and won the World Series the following year. This is a Cleveland team that is poised to be able to do that same thing if everything breaks right for them in the playoffs. Well, a very odd decision, though, from Terry Francona regarding that series. He's going with Trevor Bauer in game one because he wants to keep Corey Kluber on his normal rest because Kluber pitched on Sunday, so the four days rest he pitched in game two on, on Friday, and then he would be ready to go on normal rest on game five. But the problem with that is there's a forecast of rain, a 90% chance of rain in Cleveland on Friday, so that could really throw that schedule kind of out of whack. I think Terry, I, you hate to question Terry Francona. He's won a World Series. He took the Indians to game seven of the World Series. He's been one of the best managers in all the game, but I think he's playing a little bit of fire here going with Bauer. What if Bauer goes out and struggles? In tomorrow's game against the Yankees, suddenly you're down one nothing. You're looking maybe ahead of game four, being down two to one, and you don't have Kluber available for game four. You have to go with Carrasco or a Tomlin, so he's, he might be playing a little bit of fire. He's going to need really need Trevor Bauer to come through tomorrow. And I think when you look at these two lineups, I think that the Yankees had the advantage one through nine in the batting order. And then I think when you get into the pitching staffs, I think Cleveland's starting pitcher may be a little bit deeper than what the Yankees is. Depends on what Tanaka brings you, but depends on what Sabathia brings you. But I think at the end of the day, when you get to the bullpens, they're very equal because you have Chapman versus the the closer for Cleveland. You have a, a, a lot of interesting components that are very similar for both teams and I think this is matchup for matchup could be a chess piece that could be going back and forth all the way through all five of these games if it goes five well from a lineup standpoint obviously the Yankees you talk about Aaron Judge Gary people forget about Gary Sanchez and his power you got Brett Gardner who I thought was a I thought was going to be a key to the game last night and he was got on three times scored all three times that he got on base and then you got and then Didi Gregorius and Starlin Castro both had career years in the middle infield, and of course for Cleveland, you got Francisco Lindor who really hit the ball well down the stretch, and a guy who should be in the MVP doesn't really get a lot of mention is Jose Ramirez in the MVP conversation. I mean, his numbers are not that far behind what Judge and Altuve, even Mike Trout did during the regular season. He's kind of been the call him the Marwin Gonzalez of the of the Indians, the guy who can play in multiple positions. They put him more at second base. In fact, he's played so well there that Jason Kipnis they're having to move him to the outfield. And I think when you look in the National League side, we're looking forward to this matchup. And I think the Dodgers could not have drawn a worse draw as getting a wild card team than the Arizona Diamondbacks, who won the 11-8 ball game over Colorado in a very exciting wild card game. And I think both wild card games really 
showed us what the potential is offensively of these teams in the postseason and how quickly a pitching staff can be gone through even in one ball game when it's a winner-take-all. But the Dodgers did not fare well against Colorado, did not fare very well against Arizona. And I think this is an Arizona team that goes into L.A. on Friday night very, very confident in their ability to be able to win this series. And when the Dodgers are going through their struggles in you know late August and early September, the Diamondbacks swept them in a series at Dodger Stadium. So Arizona, I do, do think, has a lot of confidence going in. They don't go in intimidated or fearing the Dodgers. They have a lot of, obviously a lot of respect. One of the interesting things tonight, they had to use both Zach Grinke and Robbie Ray in this wild card game. Obviously, if you're Torrey Lavulo, you said, you don't worry about the next round until you get there. So he, he had to use both his best guys. So I mean, that means Taiwan Walker or Patrick Corbin goes up against Kershaw in game one of that series on Friday. But I think Torrey Lavulo will worry about that as he gets closer to the start of that series. But the Dodgers kind of had their ups and downs after going through an absolutely incredible streak from June and July and early August. They had a streak where they lost like 15 out of 20 ball games. So if you're a Dodger fan, you're hoping they kind of got, kind of got their, like the Astros did in August, got their woes out of the way, and now they're ready to, to play a ball. But that's going to be a tough National League field, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes as we go through the other series with Washington and Chicago. And I think when you look at the Kershaw issue, is, is he going to be doomed for failure in the postseason? He's been one of the best pitchers in the regular season over the last five years, but for some reason that just does not translate to October baseball. And I think for him, if he gets off to a slow start and Arizona wins a slugfest, maybe scoring six or seven runs in a ball game against L.A. because you cannot get to that back end of that bullpen with Henley waiting back there, I think that that's one thing, one thing Arizona needs to get to is try to get into the early part of the bullpen try to win the ball game before you get to the ninth and it's very similar to Houston and and Boston you don't want to see Giles most of the time in the ninth inning and you don't definitely don't want to see if you're Houston Greg Kimbrell so you basically you're dealing with 24 outs to try to do what you need to do getting to that point well when I look at the series in terms of the Dodgers pitching obviously I don't have a lot of questions I think Kershaw is going to be just fine I'm wondering about you Darvish who was the big acquisition at the trade deadline he had his ups and downs he's been pitching better recently but you know how Confident is Dave Roberts and him going into this series. And then you got guys like Rich Hill, Maeda, Brandon McCarthy, some of these other guys. I mean, guys pitched very well, again, during the regular season. But can they compete and can they pitch that way under the October spotlight? And looking at the other series, it's the one that's really flown the most under the radar is Chicago taking on Washington, probably one of the deepest pitching staffs in the Washington Nationals. When you look at their starters with Gio Gonzalez and Strasburg, and obviously you've got a starting pitcher with Scherzer, that's three healthy, very good one, two, and three pitchers, probably the best three pitchers we're going to see in the playoffs when you look at the National League. And then on the other side, can Chicago repeat the magic that they had a year ago? Because they're going to face a, a tough pitcher every single night in these playoffs. Well, no question, particularly with the Washington Nationals. And, of course, national fans realize that Max Scherzer did tweak his hamstring a little bit in his last start over the weekend. So there could be some question. Of course, if you're Dusty Baker, it's a nice luxury to be able to go to Steven Strasburg, who's been absolutely dominant or about his last six or eight starts. I mean, he's been probably the best pitcher in baseball during that span. So if if you want to give Scherzer an extra day to be fully healthy, I, mean, I think if you're Dusty Baker, you have no qualms about going to Strasburg in game one of that series than Scherzer. And then you talk about Gio Gonzalez has really had a rebound season. He looked the last couple of years like maybe he, he might be getting close to the end, but he's pitched really well this year. And then, of course, on the Chicago side, defending World Series champions, they'll come back with Lester and Arietta in these first two ball games. And 
They're going to be facing a very good line, of course, led by Bryce Harper's return from his injury. Boy, we saw that injury. You thought he might be done for the season, but it's good news for the National. He's now back, and he's going to be able to play and be the big spark plug in that in that lineup, along with guys like Rendon and Ryan Zimmerman and Daniel Murphy. And I think when we look at it now that the regular season is completely over with, you're now looking at what the awards will be given out. We had a conversation off air about this earlier, and I think that this is going to be one of those things where you're going to find out if the East Coast media bias is going to be what we think it's going to be here for Jose Altuve and and, and if his – he obviously is probably the favorite to win the MVP, but I, as I've said, I think Aaron Judge is going to get no uh, discrepancy from the East Coast media. They're going to vote in Moss for him, and the question is, is Mike Trout going to siphon some votes or enough votes away from Jose Altuve in a top three voting that you would have on everybody's MVP card? Will it cost him the overall MVP because he may not be voted in the top two, and I think Aaron Judge is going to be voted in the top two in everybody's MVP card. Right. Well, we kind of went through the numerical comparison, but I know that applies as to what you're saying in terms of the voting and folks on the East Coast, New York, down to Baltimore, those ALE cities that will be that will be in Judge's corner. But if you look at the number comparison between the two players, batting average for Altuve, 346, 24 home runs, 81 RBIs, 112 runs scored, 32 stolen bases, and seven point and seven and a half WAR wins above replacement. Judge, 284 batting average, 52 home runs, obviously a huge number there, 114 RBIs, 128 runs scored, nine stolen bases, and he led the American League at 8.2 war, and also he had bigger strikeouts and walk numbers than Altuve did during the course of the year. The reason I would lean towards Altuve, and we talked about this a little bit, is he was more consistent batting average. He had had only, only... Month that he did not bat over 300 was the first month of the season. He batted 276, then it was 357, 411, 324, 325, 367. Uh, Judge was very good until you got to July, and then he was 230 in July, 185 in August. So he went through a real down period where he was striking out a bunch and looked like the league kind of adjusted to him. To his credit, he came back and made adjusted to the adjustment and really got going in September and really carried the Yankees to that wild card spot. Well, what you're looking at, though, also is the possibility of the Indians sort of battling off each other. Lindor probably will be the more favorite player right now to be able to win the MVP voting as a uh, as a Cleveland Indian. But you're going to have a, a player pull away some votes in Jose Ramirez, and then you got Mike Trout. The question is going to be because of the time missed. He obviously is always going to be in the MVP conversation, so he'll be a top-five player. But then Lindor, I think that he's going to, to take the Midwest vote for the most part and and if he gets siphoned off, he could drop down to fourth behind Trout because I think the top three are going to be in any particular order. Uh, well, it's going to be either Atuve or Judge as the one or two, and then it's going to be Trout as number three. Right. Well, I, I talked about Jose Ramirez has put up a very great year, but like you said, it could be split to him and Lindor because Lindor was absolutely red hot. He's having a lot of home runs. He's getting on base quite a bit, and obviously he's a spectacular defender at shortstop and you know, I don't know how much that goes into the MP in how much voters look at defense when you talk about the MVP vote but I think you're basically correct Judge and Altuve will go one two however they finish there then certainly Trout even though he missed 40 some odd games because of that injured thumb will get the consideration because he was on he was on pace to have a ridiculous season before the injury and so when we look at the National League MVP, I think that you're looking at the same situation in, in Colorado where 
Nolan Arandano is going to take siphon off some of the uh, the votes from Charlie Blackman. We talk about those two players from one team have an opportunity to sort of beat each other up, and then. Giancarlo Stanton, we talked about the, the home run numbers are great, but they did not contribute to a complete success of a, a Florida Marlins team that our Miami Marlins team that was never really in playoff contention. And then I think you look at Paul Goldsmith. I think this is the year he finally punches the ticket. He's been in the top five in voting pretty much the last five years. And I think this is the year he finally gets the vote on his side and comes out as the uh, National League MVP. Yeah, you and I have been on Paul Goldsmith. It- ever since he's come up as one of the best players in the league. Of course, we saw him play in high school at the Williams, went to Texas State. And I mean, he wasn't a really highly thought of prospect when he was coming up through the Diamondbacks minor league system. He wasn't one of those guys, the top 10 guys. Oh, obviously, this guy is going to be a major league star. He just worked at it. The way, uh, reminds me so much more than any other player that I can think of, Jeff Bagwell, Jeff Bagwell in, ter- in terms of the defense, the absolutely astoundingly smart base running. He just does everything so well. And it would I would, I would be very very pleased to see him win the MVP because he really put up the numbers. Certainly he had a lot of help from another from a former Astro and JD Martinez who's coming over and really swing a hot bat. But I would love to see Paul Goldschmidt finally get an MVP award, kind of get that recognition that he's been deserving. Quickly at the National League, I think that you're, when you're looking at the Cy Young Award, I think it's a two-person race between Kershaw and Scherzer. I think that Strasburg's have a good year, and I think that's where it may hurt Scherzer a little bit in the overall numbers because he may draw some votes away from Max Scherzer. You've got Gonzalez also in the top five, and then Kenley Jansen as the closer, who was really pretty much perfect throughout the course of the year. He may siphon just a couple of votes away from Kershaw. I think that, and, and Grinke is one that you really haven't even mentioned. He didn't have what you would call a Cy Young year, but I think that the, the numbers really dictate that Kershaw probably wins this award just because the numbers will add up in his favor from basically April all the way through September. Yeah, I know Kershaw missed about three weeks with a back issue, but I think ultimately he's going to win the award. It's going to be close. Well, I guess, I guess between him and, and Scherzer, who's was so dominant in, in Washington, and those would be the top two guys. That and then when you look at the rookie of the year in the National League, that's no contest. Cody Bellinger, what a year he's had coming up. And at miss after about the first three weeks of the season, hitting a bunch of home runs and being a big part of that Dodger offense. And then in the American League, it's a two-person race, and I think that it's not even a race now. Corey Kluber is going to win the Cy Young. I think he has had such a tremendous second half of the season. He just blew by Sale, and Sale had such a off – just just a really just sort of a blah September really didn't do a lot to really impress you. Where Kluber's team was going on a 22-game winning streak, I think that's really going to – buoy Kluber's opportunity to be able to win this this award for the second time in three years. Yeah, how many of the voters are going to look at it that Sale didn't finish the deal? He was dominant for five months, but we, we gave you the, some of the numbers in September that he's been very mortal, and Kluber had just been on a tear basically since the post-All-Star break. Not that he was bad before the all he was very good before that, but he's been just dominant. I think he might have gone by, and it'll be interesting to see how close that race ultimately ends up being. I think it is a two-person race between Sale and Kluber. I do think right now my pick would be Kluber. And I think that we talked about it briefly, the, the rookies of the year. I think it's going to be no doubt Corey Bellinger will win it, uh, or Cody Bellinger will win it for the Dodgers in the National League and in the American League. Aaron Judge, it's not even – it's going to contest there. He is going to win that award going away. He may go the, unanimous there, yeah. That, that, that's, that's going to be no doubt. Now, looking at the manager of the year real quick, uh, Troy Lovello has done just a great job with the Diamondbacks. Basically turned that team around from what their record was a year ago to what their record was this year. Bud Black's going to get some consideration for the Rockies. And Craig Council, what a job he did with Milwaukee Turner around a team that really wasn't in contention at all a year ago. 
Right, that Craig Council should get some votes because that Milwaukee team, you kept thinking they're just going to fade away, the Cubs are going to run away, and, and Milwaukee just hung around and hung around to the last Saturday of the regular season. you got to give you do got to give Craig Council a lot of credit for like, keeping that team motivated and giving them a situation where they were going to battle and battle right down, to the, right down to the last time. They took some brutal losses over the last week, which really cost them a chance to compete with Colorado to the final day for that wild card spot and then looking at, at at that team when you talk about them there's really no standout players on there you don't have a ryan Braun that's playing at a ryan Braun level either pre or post steroids a few years ago and what his situation was you don't really have a person you can sit there and say they didn't have an mvp type of candidate to having a great year now you did have some players have really really good years for them but i think that was probably the team that did not have a person just really go completely out on a limb and go out there and have one of those outlier seasons that just carried the team from the beginning of the season all the way through. Well, Eric Thames was a great story, you know, hitting a lot of home runs early in the year. He went through some injury issues, but he had a pretty good year at first, but not coming back over from Korea or from Korea, I should say. And that a couple of pitchers, Jimmy Nelson pitched well. He got hurt down the stretch. Their closer, Knable, pitched pretty well. So they had some good stories on that team. And it's a team with a lot of young talent. And some of those guys, you know, in the trade, Carlos Gomez trade, Guys like Josh Hader, the left-hander, they're probably going to pitch out of the bullpen. Domingo Santana, who's really turned into a good outfielder for that team. So it's a team with a lot of young guys, and you have a GM and David Stearns who learned at the knee of Jeff Luno, so I think he's going to work kind of the same system that Luno did to try to continue to build that franchise. Looking at the American League, I don't think there's any doubt about the three uh, managers that we have expectations to be in the manager of the year voting Paul Molitor of the Twins, Terry Francona of the Indians, A.J. Hinch of the Astros and A.J. Hinch probably picked the worst year he could possibly be in contention for manager of the year with a 101 win team with Paul Molitor turning around a 100 loss team from a year ago, the first time in baseball history that the team has made the playoffs after losing 100 games the year before Yeah, he did a great job with that with that team, I mean Obviously, during the course of the regular season, we may have some pick some nits with him. Yeah, it's a good thing to manage his magic in a wild card game. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he might have wanted to get Irvin Santana out of that ball game a little quicker than he did, but he did overall. He did a, obviously he did a great job, and again, that's a team with a lot of young talent. Byron Buxton seems to be finally coming into his own after really struggling. We saw what a great defender he is, and he, he starts showing some signs with the bat. You got Joe Maurer, the great veteran, who's moved over to first base. He hit over 350. Post All Star break and Brian Dozier, like he did last year, when going off after the All Star break. So they have some nice pieces there. They hopefully get some more young pitching going. Jose Barrios looks like a young top of the rotation caliber starter. I'm probably going to need to maybe add a couple pieces in the bullpen, but that's going to be a very interesting team going forward to see if they can challenge the Indians. Let's quickly go through and look at the four series, do our picks, and find out who we'll think they'll be playing for the ALCS and the NLCS next week about this time and you look at the uh the series we'll pick the houston series last so we'll go through the national league la and arizona i think this is going to be a great series i think it's going five and i think that because they're playing in la in game five i think la will barely hold on against the arizona Diamondbacks. yeah i have a suspicion we'll, we'll see if there is a game five it's going to be kershaw i'm with you i think it's going to go game cause that's a really good area. i think people don't really know how good that arizona it's not a little bit tonight obviously they got a great offense one of the, as I talked about during this game, they had to use both Zach Grinke and Robbie Ray, their top two starters. So they had guys like Taiwan Walker may have to go in game one. 
and maybe Grinky and Ray go in the middle of the series. So I, that could be a disadvantage for them. And it's a Kershaw available going game one and game five. I would go right now in five games with the Dodgers. And then look at the other series. Obviously, the defending world champions, first time in over 100 years, the Chicago Cubs. Can they maintain a playoff run? I just think this team just does not have the same sparks they had a year ago. I think this is a team that, that, that got a World Series. I think that they may be a little content with winning that World Series. The pitching hasn't been as good as it was. Jake Arrieta hasn't been the same type of pitcher we've seen over the last three or four years, not the dominating pitcher. And I think Washington's very hungry. They have a healthy Bryce Harper. They've got a team that's playing very good baseball right now. They have a very good pitching staff, not only the starters, but the bullpen. And I think this is a team I'm taking right now, the Washington Nationals, to win this series in four games. I've been thinking about that. I think you're right. I, first of all, if you're Washington, you know you're getting close to the end of this window. You know Bryce Harper is going to be a free agent after next season. So with the, with the great starting pitching they have, they shored up the bullpen with the additions of Madsen and Doolittle, particularly Doolittle has been really good as the closer. And I just think it's going to be their time. The Cubs, like I said, were a magical run. They had the great pitching, you know, the offense coming through at the right time. I'm just not sure those elements are going to quite come together, maybe a little bit of the World Series hangover. I'm going with the Nationals in five. Okay, and we look on the other side. The New York Yankees will be playing at Cleveland. Cleveland will host games one and two and game five. And I think the Cleveland Indians, the depth of the pitching staff, I think that it's interesting to go Bauer first and then go second with Kluber. It could be to turn out to be one of the most genius moves that Terry Francona can make to be able to have the numbers go that way. Obviously, Kluber will be there for a game five. I don't think it's going to go five. I think that the Indians are going to win this. I think they're going to win it in four because I think the Yankees, after a certain point, I think the pitching is going to hold down that Yankees offense just enough to be able to allow them to be able to take this series. And on the Yankees side, obviously, you know, Sonny Gray probably going in game one. I haven't heard the official any official announcement from Joe Girardi on that. Tanaka's pitched very well. Probably going to they bring Sever, do they bring Severino back at the stadium after he really spit the bit last night? only retiring one batter, but I don't think they've lost any confidence in him. He just went out and had a bad outing last night. So it'll be very interesting where they bring Severino back in, in this series. And like I said, the, the Indians have one of the great bullpen weapons of all in, in Andrew Miller, who can go two, three innings in a, in a ballgame and really shut down off and pick some of those big left-handed hitters at Yankee lineup. I'm going to go, I do think the series might go five games because I think the Yankees, if they get ahead, their bullpen can really come into play for them. And then looking at the other series, Houston taking on Boston, I think that this is a very interesting series, and I think game one is the most critical game that, that's going to be played in any one of the four five the four series. I think that if Houston wins game one at home, Verlander knocks out Sale, I think Houston has a very good chance not just to win the series but to sweep the series. Right. I've said all along I thought Boston had to win game one. I'm going with the Astros in four in, the, in this series. I think their lineup is better than what the Red Sox have. Their bullpen – I think it's going to be short up a little bit. It's going to be interesting to see where A.J. Hinch goes in terms of the starters in game three and four. We know it's going to be Verlander and Keuchel in the first two games. Right now, my guess would be to go with Brad Peacock in game three. It could be McCullers. They could tandem some of these pictures up. You also have Morton and McHugh, so you have really four guys that could really – Hinch could very easily slide in those spots. It's going to be interesting to see how those decisions are made. He may not wait to make those decisions until the first two games of the series are done, but overall, I just think the Astros are playing better baseball than the Red Sox, and I think they take this series. I think they're ready, and they're going to win this series in four games. Yeah, I think it's a different team than we saw win a wild card game two years ago, and I think they really felt – 
I, I think they were ahead of the curve. I think they were a couple of years ahead with the youth that they had. I think the, the experienced leadership they have with Brian McCann, with uh, Carlos Beltran, with a, a Reddit coming over to this team. I think when you look at those three players, I think that offered them a, a situation to get a lot of stability. Yeah, they really added the veteran leadership. A guy like McCann just does a great job handling the pitching staff. And I think the Verlander. And then a guy like, Bel, a guy like Beltran, even if he's not hitting, he's giving you, he's a dispensable sounding board for some of these young guys in terms of being able to apply to their games. And then obviously the addition of Verlander was huge down the stretch. It gives you really two aces when you talk about both him and Dallas Keuchel. Well, you, it gives you playoff experience. Keuchel got to pitch a couple of games in the playoffs. Verlander's pitched a couple of games in the World Series. So I think that's a difference maker right there when you have a horse like that that has the experience and the leadership. And you could see this. Since he's been traded over here, he has talked to players. He's been around the players. He's not been shy about sharing his knowledge. And I think that this team, when Verlander got traded over here, they were going through that malaise in all of August when they had the real struggle with only about 12 wins in August. They came back in September and finished the way we saw them for the first four months of the season and it's not forgetting jeff luno has basically admitted part of the motivation was to give the city something to cheer about and, you know they've gone we've gone through the terrible storm with harvey and the, all the and all the flooding and the terrible aftermath of that and jeff luno has admitted he thought the fans needed a little bit of pick me up and adding verlander to that not just picked up the fans picked up the clubhouse and we've seen the results the astros have taken off in the month of september and i just think they're playing really good baseball and they're set for a what I think would be an epic ALCS against the Indians. Turning our attention to the National Football League, obviously as good as your last game, and obviously you can't be any better. They would be historic for the Houston Texans coming off their most important victory that they've had as a franchise since 2002. And obviously they've won some games, playoff games, but to dominate a team that's supposed to be the team that's on the come right now in the Tennessee Titans that have played very well so far going into that, that ball game on Sunday, I think when you look at a 57-14 to demolition the way they did, that game was not even close. It wasn't even a test. And if this is the Houston Texans team, we're going to see the rest of the year. This is a team that can win the AFC because of the struggles New England's having right now. Obviously, they're going to ride the ship for the most part, but they've already seen Houston whenever they didn't have Deshaun Watson at what he's going to have with 13 or 14 games under his belt by the time they would see New England the next time. And obviously, Kansas City has struggled a little bit even in their four wins, and they struggled with Washington down the stretch in winning the ball game on Monday night. You look at a team right now with Kansas City coming in here, if Houston sends a message to Kansas City and gets one game back in the overall record in the AFC, I think this is a team right now that could go on a huge run because the schedule really favors them, not only going into the bye week after playing Cleveland coming out of the bye week. This is a team that could get on a run of four or five, maybe six games in a row. As a Texan fan, you see, you've wondered over the years, what would it be like to have a guy like Brady, like Breeze, like Rodgers, like Wilson? They finally have it. They, they finally they have guy, it. Yes. That, that makes a lot of things easier when you have the guy at quarterback and they now have the guy. Sean Watson, Sean, you just see the leadership, the way the guys on the offensive side, and the whole team really gravitates to him. He's, just, he's this charismatic person. But he's also an excellent quarterback. He, may, he makes throws. He can run, obviously. He's a dynamic playmaker. And we saw he's actually making these receivers better. There's been a lot of questions, you know, beyond DeAndre Hopkins about the quality of the Texans' receiver core. But Watson's making these guys. I mean, you saw Will Fuller coming back out for his injury, making two touchdown catches and, and being thrown open. The tight ends, Ryan Griffin's playing very well. Bruce Ellington's making plays. But Deshaun Watson just really upgrades the outlook of this team going forward. Yeah, you look at at 
at the way Fuller played, and we talk about his handle and his ability to catch the football. And obviously, when they fixed the shoulder, they obviously fixed his hands at the same time because he didn't <laughs> look like the same player. Uh, some tough, difficult catches, and I think if he is a good number two with his speed in the slot, w- with the, what you can have on the outside. I think that they may be one receiver away from being a very dynamic offense. And obviously, when you you put up 35-plus points on the board on Sunday, I think that this is an offense right now that's beginning to hit its its stride because I think that Foreman is the better running back right now ahead of Lamar, Lamar Miller. And I think that ultimately, if they transition that in, I think Miller will still be the starter. But I think Foreman will even have a greater impact the farther along we go in the season as long as he stays healthy. Well, with Miller, you saw his ability to make plays in the passing game, got that great that screen pass, took it in the end zone. That's where you can use him. I think Foreman can try and grind out the tough yards. I think offensively, when you, of course you look at the offensive line, it was terrible in week one. But part how much of that was the offensive line being bad and Tom Savage being a statue in the pocket. The offensive line's got, but they still are going to need upgrades. I think I think they're okay. Nick Martin looks like a really good center, and you know, but, but the rest of the position they could use a couple upgrade, at least an upgraded tackle and an upgraded guard because you want to put, obviously, the best offensive line in front of Deshaun Watson. And, and really what I'm fed up with with the Texans, and we've talked about this off the air, uh, the situation right now between Rick Smith and, and Bill O'Brien, I'm just really sick and tired of what I've, I've seen over the four years that they've been together here. I think Bill O'Brien now has the opportunity to become the coach that we expected him to be and what we thought he could be. And it's Rick Smith's job to pick up his pace because his draft record post-first round, when he's got second, third, fourth, fifth rounds, where you build the depth of a team, has been horrendous. Now, this year he may have three top three picks, but what has he had to do to get there? With the Brock Osweiler debacle, paying him $34 million for two years, basically you had to buy Cleveland and basically ransom them to be able to take Brock Osweiler off of your roster to get that salary cap hit off of there. But at what cost was it? Two uh, first and second rounder next year. You look at switching the first rounders last year. Obviously, I go back to where they they should have forgot the name on the uniform and drafted Derek Carr and Khalil Mack back in in 2015 or 2014. I just think that Rick Smith needs to be taken out of the role as player personnel person. He needs to be just a, a coffee bringer for, for for Bob and Cal McNair, do what he's capable of doing, which is leave the football operations alone, let Bill O'Brien have an opportunity to be able to, to just like they say, I need to buy the ingredients if I'm going to make the meal. Well, I did a little homework in anticipation we might talk about Rick Smith. These are the 2011 through 2015 draft picks of the Houston Texans as, as picked by Rick Smith. And we'll go through one, one year at a time and we'll comment with Okay, 2011, first-round pick, J.J. Watt. I think we're going to give him credit for that one. Second round, Brooks Reed. Fourth round, Rashad Carmichael. If you're going who, that's the point. Shiloh Kale in the fifth round, as well as T.J. Yates. Derek Newton, which is a nice pick in the seventh round. And then somebody named Aneta Zogwu. Again, who? Correct. Now, you, you, obviously, you, you talk about a couple of players there that have made an impact on this team. Obviously, J.J. Watt is a superstar. He, he's a generational type of player. And, and you knew that he had a, a potential to be a very good player coming out of Wisconsin. I don't think you could ever envision him being the three-time defensive, basically, player of the year. And, and the question is going to be now with the back injuries of J.J. Watt. Have we seen the best J.J. Watt? And are we going to be looking in the rearview mirror now, finding out what J.J. Watt was and what we wasted over the last four? Four or five years instead of what his production is going to be over the next four or five years. 
And again, we'll give him some credit in that draft for Derek Newton, who unfortunately had injuries at the Kimmel, but he was able to play right tackle and play a pretty decent right tackle for a couple of years. We'll move to 2012, first round, Whitney Merciless. Again, we'll give him credit for that. That turned out to be a good pick. Uh, the rest of this draft, ugh. Uh, DeVere Posey at number, in the third round, ugh. Brandon Brooks, who's a good player. Unfortunately, he's now doing it in Philadelphia. Ben Jones also was a good pick, but he's not with the Texans anymore. Then Keyshawn Martin was the other fourth round pick. In fact, there were three fourth round picks, Ben Jones, Keyshawn Martin, Jared Crick, Randy Bullock in the fifth round, and then Nick Mondek in the sixth round. That's basically Whitney Merciless and a bunch of ugh. A bunch of others. And I think that when you look at those drafts and we talk about the the teams that are really good, the Green Bays, the Seattles, the teams that consistently play year in and year out, the Belichick Patriots, they will draft depth in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds. And we talk about it. The Rick Smith's second and third round drafts have been horrendous. I mean, it's not even close to funny because it's just wasted pick after wasted pick after wasted pick. And and really what I talk about the the Derek Carr thing is, I think honestly in that room they were saying, Derek Carr's not on our board, no matter what. We're not going to go through that. And that is a a hit and a half on that organization if they never even considered drafting Derek Carr first in that second round when they have the opportunity behind Williams drafted in the first round. You 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 have to or, – or, or Clowney in the first round. If you didn't make that decision to make that, that pick and you didn't think he was the guy just because of the last name and what his brother was and everything 10 years – or 15 years before that – that's a an indictment on your on your franchise. Okay, we'll move on to 2013. Again, DeAndre Hopkins first round. Again, that the theme is he does get the first round right. DJ Swearinger in the second round. Brennan Williams in the third in the third, and all along with Sam Montgomery, Travardo Williams in the fourth round. David Quesenberry is a great story. Still on the practice squad. Great story recovering from cancer. He was in one of the sixth round picks along with Alex Bonner and Chris Jones. And then we'll give him credit for Ryan Griffin, who's turned out to be a nice player at tight end. So. That's you know, two productive players, one that's coming back from the cancer, obviously, in Hopkins and Griffin. Then a, that draft was absolute. Basically, he punted that draft. And, and it really doesn't get any better in any – like I said, the 2017 draft is probably the one he has probably hit the most picks and the most depth. And the question is, did he have influence on every single one of those picks? And coming off the Brock Osweiler fiasco – he had to pick hit the hit this draft fairly well because of what he had to trade away for the 2018 draft, losing the first and second round pick. He had to get something out of this draft because then you're talking about losing two or three drafts in a row. Okay, moving on to 2014, the big Davian Clowney in the in the first round. Now, somebody wonders they should have taken Khalil Mack, but that's water under the bridge. Xavier Suofilo has been a average at best, probably below average player at guard. He's in the second round. C.J. Fedorowicz, okay. He's in the third round. Lewis Nix, the other third round pick, is nothing of a big bust. Tom Savage, career backup in the fourth round. Then in the sixth round, Jeffrey Pagan, who's no longer on the front. Alfred Blue, who's been okay. He's been more of a backup running back. And then Jay Prosh, who nice pick at fullback. So that's not a bad draft overall. A couple of really bad, especially with Lewis Nix. Well, the Sufilo thing is. Oh, you, oh you... I'm sorty uh, two more seventh round pick, Andre Howe. Which, that's a nice pick for right. the seventh round, and then Lonnie Ballantine. But but you look at the Suofilo problem that you have right there. You could have drafted if you wanted to bring in a quarterback like Carr. I would have rather had Carr in here than Suofilo because then you had the opportunity to have three years with Carr to find out if he was your quarterback. Because what have you gone through with that opportunity? The three years that you've had since that draft. 
you had no quarterback. You were you were in a revolving door. You had gone through Matt Schaub. He was done by that time. So you were looking for the next quarterback. And, and if Derek Carr, the intangibles, and I told you this when we were talking about the draft back then, that was the name that stuck out to me. And I said, the Texans will not draft him, but they will rue the day they did not draft him. And the question is, is he going to be brittle? He's now suffered a second injury in consecutive seasons. So basically out of the last four playing weeks that he has played, he's now going to miss extended time for the second time in a year. Now that doesn't preclude him from being the great quarterback that, that he has now getting paid for and a possible MVP type of candidate. But at the end of the day, Attendance does matter on the field, and that's one thing that's going to define him whether he is a great quarterback or not. But but it's just I thought he was the guy that would fit this system under Bill O'Brien's offense that could work it out. And and, and again, I this is not hindsight. This was something that we've talked about over the last four years, and I said at that time they needed to draft Derek Carr. Yeah, we've talked about this for the last three years. And then we'll go, the most recent draft I looked up was 2015, Kevin Johnson in the first round. Problem is he hadn't been able to stay, stay on the healthy, field. Yeah, yeah. Number two, second round, Bernard McKinney. That's worked. He's been great so far as an inside linebacker. Basically, he's replaced Brian Cushing in that role. Jalen Strong just got booted. He was a third round pick. Uh, Keith Mumphrey didn't work. Rashard Cleat in the sixth round. Christian Covington's been a nice, he's at least in the rotation, defensive tackle. And then Kenny Hilliard in the seventh round. So that's a draft mostly other than McKinney and hopefully Johnson can get healthy and contribute. And then maybe Covington, but. A lot of guys who didn't work out. But what you're saying there, and this is the indictment against Rick Smith and the organization as the the scouts and whoever the, the player personnel people are, what you're looking at there is a failure to get more than two players in any draft or three players in any draft. He doesn't have a sweep draft where he got five right or six right of the seven rounds. That's the issue because we're talking about right now. There's no defensive back depth. The linebackers are, are close to, 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 to what you see on the field, the four linebackers you see out there. Defensive line, you've only got probably one depth there. No offensive line backups. You have no receiver backups. Your running backs, you're fairly deep in. And you only have one quarterback now because the quarterback's turned into probably the, the most glorious find you could possibly have. Right. We, this is something we've discussed. That's part of the reason. Going through that just – the last those five years of draft picks, the middle round draft picks just have not worked out almost across the board. And one the thing I noticed, and then you add Braxton Miller to this, they probably ought to stop picking wide receivers in the third round because that hasn't worked out very well. Not really of any of them. And I think that, that when you look at next year's draft with not having a first or second rounder, it's going to make free agency that much more important because you do have cap space. You're going to have an opportunity. And I think there's two things that they will need to address, no matter what the success of this team is in 2017, will be offensive line depth or offensive line help and also safety and, and, and corner help because they just do not have any depth whatsoever because that, that precludes is Jonathan Joseph going to be a Texan next year. Right, and one of the things they had two third-round picks, so it's possible Rick Smith can maneuver maybe to try to get into the somewhere into the end of the second round. But yeah, if you're looking for say a franchise tackle, you're not going to find him in the second round. Generally, if you're going to looking for a franchise tackle or a big-time safety, you're going to find him in the first round. You're not going to be able to find him later in the in the draft. So that's a big problem area with two areas that the Texans need to upgrade going forward. And I think when you look around the league right now, I don't remember a season in which 
the parity is so. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a parity league. Everybody would love to be eight and eight, nine and seven, seven and nine, so that everybody's in contention. The final couple of weeks of the season, Roger Goodell would love everybody to have an opportunity to be able to make the playoffs. And then you have a couple of good outlier teams. I've talked about Kansas City being the best team in the AFC. I still think they are the best team in the AFC. Pending what happens this Sunday, I think that that could change dramatically if Houston plays very well against Kansas City and really makes this a continuous because this goes back to New England a couple of weeks ago when Deshaun Watson played very well against the New England defense that right now can't stop a high school team. Right. And it's really weird because uh, Bill Belichick is obviously known as a, as a defensive genius and a, and a wizard in terms of getting personnel in the right place, and they just look lost on that side of the ball. You know, can Tom Brady save him again? You'd never count Tom Brady out, but he's going to have to score a lot of points right now with, with that defense in disarray. And then you look kind of around the rest of the AFC. There's not really one team. You talk about Kansas City. They're 4-0. Alex Smith's playing very well at the quarterback position. They have the young rookie, Kareem Hunt, who's really taken off at running back. But other than that, Buffalo is 3-1, and but are they for real? We'll see going down the stretch. And then you have Denver three and one. Obviously, great defense led by Von Miller. The West, you know, if Oakland can get healthy with Derek Carr back in the lineup, they're going to be a team to watch as well. So there's not really you look at the AFC a team that you look at and say that's clearly the team to beat in the AFC right now. Maybe Kansas City. And I think when you look at, and I've been on the the Raiders bandwagon the last couple of years, seeing what they put together on offense. Obviously, Khalil Mack, and we talk about him being one of the best defensive players in football. I think he's one of the best players in football because he is a game changer. And obviously, you have several of those in the league, a J.J. Watt, and, 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 and you look at – the way Khalil Mack plays the game, he disrupts the backfield. He stops the run. He can cover passing-wise. But this guy is just a game-changer. He is He's like a running back slash wide receiver on defense that makes impact plays. Oh, no doubt about it. He goes, he goes sideline, sideline, great speed, great instincts, great football intelligence. Now, he, ha- he has the whole package. When you, and when you look over at the NFC, the big surprise team has been Los Angeles Rams. They have some really good personnel defense. Aaron Donald's one of the best defensive tackles in the league. And then Todd Gurley, absolute monster at running back. And then you got to look at Jared Goff. We've seen a lot of improvement from him. Maybe working at Sean McVay has been a partnership that's really worked out. And you see Jared Goff getting better and the quarterback situation getting better and finding some receivers, obviously a big weapon with Todd Gurley in the backfield. Rams team could be a surprise team as we continue to go forward in the NFC. And then you, because you look at the rest of the league, obviously, you could never count out Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers. You know, what's Dallas going to be? We've seen them struggle a little bit here. Washington got out to a 2-0 start, but they've lost two in a row. Atlanta defending conference champions. They've had some struggles. Julio Jones is now in a little bit of an injury situation. And, and there's a couple other teams. Carolina's 3-1, and one, but they lost Greg Olson, one of their top weapons on the out, outside. And he's going to be out for quite a bit. And I wouldn't have thought that that Carolina, after being down early in that ball game, could go in there and come from behind. And you never think that Rob Ninkovich by himself could be that big of an instrument for the New England defense. But obviously, missing him in the middle of that uh, defense has really cost him a lot of identity, really. And you heard a lot of people talk about it. Ninkovich is so intelligent in terms of getting people in the right place, always being in the right place in terms of either coverage or being able to get inside, make plays behind the line of scrimmage, and they do miss him. It, it certainly looks like it. You, you look at the results on the field, giving up 33 to the, both the Texans and the Panthers, who did not go into the season 
you would consider as offensive juggernauts. And I think when you look at the schedule this week, some of the key games, I think it starts tomorrow night uh, with the the Patriots and Buccaneers matching up in Tampa. We're going to find out what we can see about Jameis Winston and the Tampa offense. Obviously, they've got a great receiving core in that group there. And I think that this is a situation can – can the Tampa defense hold Brady to maybe 24 or 28 points? I think that Tampa can pull the upset at home, and I think that could really spell trouble for New England. I think New England's still going to win their division because obviously Buffalo's off to a very good start right now, but can they maintain it? The Jets, 2-2 two and two team right now, off to a decent start, and Miami just struggling completely trying to find any kind of offense. It looks like they're going to be in trouble again this week, but I think that when you look at New England, they have time to fix the problem, but do they have the components to fix the problem? It's going to be the issue. Right, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. And going back, and you brought up Tampa Bay. That's the one team I should have mentioned in the NFC. In the NFC. Obviously, Mike Evans is one of the best receivers in the league. And Jameis Winston has really cut down on the interception. You see his growth as a quarterback. He's making better decisions on the field. But he's, that's going to be a test tomorrow night with that see if he can put up some more big numbers against a Patriot defense that is really, really struggling. The interesting thing about the schedule this week, and it's sort of funny whenever you start getting in to the bye weeks with some teams with a, a little bit more of a limited schedule starting with week five, the matchups this week, 49ers at Colts. Somebody's going to win a game. You look at the Jets and Browns, somebody's going to win that game. The Jaguars play in the Steelers. That's a good defensive matchup. Can Big Ben take advantage of a Jaguar defense that's been both up and down and an offense that's been inconsistent at best? Uh, you have the, the Chargers and the Giants. Somebody's going to win a ball game there. Uh, the Bills playing the Bengals. I think that, that new, uh, that's a critical ball game for Cincinnati to try to get into a playoff chase because they want to bring the Bills back to the, the competition because that's an important game that can play out in tiebreaker situations. The Panthers at the Lions. The Lions have been probably one of the more disappointing teams to start the season and the Panthers trying to keep their role going. The Titans at the Dolphins would expect the Titans to win that ball game. The Cardinals playing at the Eagles, I think that's a very intriguing matchup in the NFC. The Ravens at the Raiders, well, obviously can can the, the Ravens, who had no offense whatsoever against Jacksonville over in London, come back and play very well on the road, going across a couple of time zones in, in the West Coast and, and playing the Raiders. And what's the Raiders going to look like? Not having the opportunity for... Uh, car to be in there for at least the next three to four weeks and a big matchup between Seattle and the Rams coming up on Sunday afternoon the Cowboys and the the Packers probably the most uh, intriguing NFC matchup over the weekend and I think that's a huge matchup between the Chiefs and Texans coming up next Sunday night with uh, Sunday night football being here next Sunday night at 730 and you didn't bring up two teams that combined one and seven the Colts and the 49ers does Andrew Luck play this week? They talk about he will practice. Now, that does not mean he'll play. We could see Jacoby Brissett once again in the lineup, but that's going to be an issue for the Colts. Can they get Andrew Luck back in the lineup? When they get him back in the lineup, can they keep him in the lineup? Yeah, and and we, we've talked about this, and, and the question's going to be, Obviously, Pagano may be the guy, probably isn't the guy. And, and in your situation right now, do you just let Jacoby Brissett play out the season knowing he's going to be gone at the end of the year as a free agent? Let Andrew Luck get completely healthy, not put any 
because obviously that offensive line is nothing that you want to put him behind right now. And this is a team right now that's really struggling, doesn't look like a team that's going to be either in contention for a playoff or in the playoffs. So I think that when you look at it, this may be a year that you play for a high draft choice, maybe ransom that high draft choice into a couple of three picks like we saw RG3 uh, a few years ago, uh, maybe get two or three draft choices at the top of the draft and, and shore up that offensive line and maybe get you some defensive help and maybe some more receivers. Well, I brought that up, and I'm on NFL.com. It says, look, no timetable return, fouls to play in 2017. That does not sound good. I, I just I think that the, 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 the valor would be don't even worry about putting Andrew Luck on the field in 2017 because that way you're sort of saving throws on that arm. You're saving that shoulder. Uh, there's no – no real reason for you to sit there and, and, and try to, to bring him back. I just don't think that it gives you an opportunity to be successful when you look at that. Looking at some of the college football matchups this weekend coming up, uh, it's not a great schedule in the top 25. Uh, you look at some matchups starting out on uh, Thursday, you've got Louisville playing North Carolina State in a ACC matchup. Then on Saturday, a number five Georgia team that's sort of flown a little bit under the radar right now, taking on Vanderbilt. Iowa State at number three, Oklahoma. Clemson hosting Wake Forest. They should have no problems there. Penn State at Northwestern. That could be something that could be a sort of an upset watch matchup right there when you look at it because Penn State has, has been very lucky going to Iowa. Northwestern may be a team that has enough components to really give them a problem. And that's a very early start, 11 a.m. start on Saturday. Could they catch Penn State maybe sleeping and looking forward a little bit? Right. Obviously, Penn State has a great one of the best backs in college football, Saquon Barkley, just an all-around back guy can make plays in the passing game as well as obviously run the football. That could be one of those kind of trap games you, as you talk about, you see sometimes during the course of the year. I think Penn State got through one and they went to Iowa and won a ball game where they had to come back late in that ball game and give Trace McSoyle their quarterback credit for taking them down the field and being a finding way to get into the end zone there. But I think Penn State does find a way to get through that ball game. Most interesting game in the Big 12 this week is obviously the 23 West Virginia Mountaineers taking on TCU at Amon Carter. And I've talked to you about this, and I've said TCU is my sleeper team this year to be able to make the postseason playoffs and get into the college football playoff. And right now they're right on track where they need to be. They get one more game against Oklahoma than a possible playoff game. And I think if they can take care of West Virginia right here, they're really poised after knocking off Oklahoma State in pretty dominating fashion a couple of weeks ago. This is a TCU Horn Frog team that has one of the best underrated coaches and Gary Patterson does it year in and year out did it when they were in the WAC did it when they were coming into the Big 12 uh, the first year they were in the, or one of the first years they were in the Big 12 was with Baylor going through with only one loss that year and I think that you look at a TCU team right now that has the opportunity to be a team that could be a spoiler for the playoffs yeah we saw what they did going into Stillwater knocking off a obviously a great offensive team in Oklahoma State and you talk about Gary Patterson does a great job with that, especially with that defense. That's the side of the ball that he comes from is the defensive side. But they also have Kenny Hill, a quarterback, playing very with very much within himself. He's not making the kind of mistakes he was making when he was at A&M or last year when his, his first year as the quarterback for TCU. So he's been able to run the system. He's been able to get the ball in the hands of some of his playmakers, and you've seen the results. Looking at one more game, it's obviously a big one at College Station on Saturday night. Alabama visiting the number one team in the country. And if Kevin Sumlin's going to have a signature win, the other one was the game that, that Johnny Menzel played so well at Alabama, winning that ball game five years ago. You look at the Alabama team coming into A&M, 
do they overlook A&M playing in College Station, and does A&M pull off the upset or, or get themselves in a position to pull off the upset? I think this is a trap game right now for Alabama. I think A&M can play very well. I think they can keep it close and have a shot to win that because this is a team that very easily could be 4-0 going into this game. Right, obviously they had the heartbreaking loss in the season over against UCLA. They slowly played better. We've seen Kellen Mond really mature quite a bit at the quarterback spot, but it's going to be a big challenge going up, obviously, against that great Bama defense. And then the A&M offense, they have a lot of weapons to worry about. Primarily start with Jalen Hurts, the young man from Channelview, running that Alabama offense. And it's the first time that, that Nick Saban's really had kind of a dual threat guy at the, at the quarterback position, a guy who could make plays both with his arm and and with his legs, he's got, certainly got the guys on the outside. He's got Scarborough at running back, a big back that can make plays, in the, particularly in the red zone, and make plays in short yardage situations. So it's going to be a big challenge. But A&M having that game at home, I think, will certainly will help them out. But I think Alabama right now should win that ball game. And as, as we close out our first ever podcast here on the Fed Up Podcast, we'll remind you we'll have this uh, show coming up to find out what we're fed up with in sports. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Kyle. And obviously we'll get together down the line and we will – Find out what we, each of us is fed up as the baseball playoffs continue on, the football season gets into the meat of the schedule and everything, and we look forward to seeing everybody down the line as we continue on the Fed Up podcast. We'll thank you for our, from Houston, Texas. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's Fed Up podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. This podcast has been produced and distributed by Cooper Sports Network. All rights reserved.